All right, welcome everyone. First, uh, of course, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's on their traditional land that the University of Sydney has built. Um, we often like to say in SCI that this place has been a place of learning about the relationship between people and environment for tens of thousands of years, uh, and um, we are both sort of proud and humbled to continue that tradition. I'm David Schlossberg. I am a professor of environmental politics and the co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute. Uh, welcome to the first session of Food at Sydney for this term. Food at Sydney has been running, this um, uh, seminar season has been running for about two years. It started in August 2014, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so it's entering its third year. So one of the ideas here is to put academics at the University of Sydney and elsewhere into conversation with practitioners and also into conversation uh, with the audience. And I think the longevity of this series and um, well, it shows the range of interests uh, in the community, the range of interests uh, among academics, and it also just shows um, the extent of audience interest as well. We wouldn't continue this series if we didn't uh, have the sort of full rooms and engaged audience uh, and the interests of folks like you. So thanks for coming. So in the past couple of years, we have covered a range of issues. We started um, with a big event on food waste. We've done uh, work on oceans and fish, and there's actually an article in today's conversation uh, on recent research out of the University of Sydney, Elswith Proben and others. Uh, and we've done some work at the relationship of food and climate change. That's ongoing. That's actually a major interest of of citizens in the Sydney of Sydney, city of Sydney as they uh, were putting together the city's adaptation plan. So um, there's quite a range of issues and quite a range uh, of interests. This term in the series, we're covering another uh, broad range of issues, food systems, healthy food environments in the city, food at work, issues of gender uh, and generations. And we'll have a full schedule posted shortly, right? Soon. So, uh, and I think the next one one of the slides up here. We'll get back, there you go, to the next one. Uh, I do want to acknowledge the work of the Food, People, and Planet Research Group in the Sydney Environment Institute, uh, Alana Mann, Bill Pritchard, Brian Jones, Elspeth Proben, uh, Margaret Allman Farinelli, and Luke Craven. Uh, of course, all praise always goes to Michelle St. Anne, the Executive Administrator uh, of the Sydney Environment Institute for making everything uh, run, uh, and to Meredith Hall, uh, at Sydney Ideas for uh, the same. So today the focus of the seminar is on food insecurity and putting good food back on the table. Uh, clearly the idea here is not just to identify the problem, uh, but also to identify ways to address that condition. So we've got three speakers today, and in order I'll just do the introductions now and then people will uh, jump up. Uh, Liz Mellon works in health promotion in southwestern Sydney. Uh, LHD and it's focused on addressing food insecurity over the last 10 years, combining local food access projects with advocacy. She's also a founding member of Right to Food. Tegan Pacone right, uh, is a dietitian with a background in clinical obesity management and an interest in food systems, social justice, and environmental sustainability. She's currently working as a nutrition program coordinator for Second Bite, where she's responsible for delivering education programs uh, in the community food and welfare sector to increase food independence for people experiencing food insecurity. And third up will be Luke Craven. Luke is a PhD student uh, here 
at the University of Sydney and uh, a research associate at the Sydney Environment Institute. His interests lie at the application of social and political theory to contemporary policy problems, including a focus on food politics uh, and policy and the complexity of that relationship. So uh, without further ado, that's enough for me. We'll come I'll come back up at the end. So we'll have three 10 to 15 minute presentations, one after another. Uh, then we'll have everybody sit up here and you can lob your difficult questions in their general direction. Okay? So first up, uh, we'll have Liz. Okay, so um, great to see so many people here interested in food insecurity because I think it's a, a topic which when we started working on it about 10 years ago there was um, really very little understood and I, I doubt we would have got this kind of audience um, apart from people who are really working in the field already. Um, I'm going to talk about mostly about the work we've been doing in southwest Sydney um, and a little bit about some general ideas but just to start off I'm assuming that everybody knows basically what food insecurity is so I haven't, I haven't brought a definition because I'm assuming that everybody would know what that means. Is everybody more or less familiar with the idea, with the term, and, it's, and the fact that it is an issue in Australia? Good, well, I won't bother with the definition again then. Um, this is, I just put this up because I love this um, picture. It was, it was painted on a wall very close to the, in, in a park very close to where I live. Um, I didn't commission it, but... Um, I think um, it, it, it's a testament to the fact that people are thinking about some of these issues. We've got full belly on the left, um, empty belly on the, on the right, and I like to imagine that the empty belly person is frowning and, and pretty angry about the situation. Um, and the other thing I'll start with is a quote from Hilary Benn, um, which you can read, Food Politics at its, is politics at its most raw. Um, one of the reasons why differences in wealth and education become chasms in life health and life expectancy and triggers a great deal of inequality. So I think it's really important and something that, that has become very apparent to us when we've been working that it's not just about food in the most immediate sense of not being hungry but food and the ability to access um, healthy good food has huge impacts on people's lives in all kinds of ways which I'll go into a little bit um, in the presentation um, and really do contribute to inequality. So food insecurity is absolutely an issue about inequality and not just about access to food, because I'll talk a little bit about how food can have an impact on so many other aspects of people's lives. It's also an economic necessity. Um, <clears throat> again, I haven't got a lot of detail in here, but um, we know that the um, overweight and obesity as issues and chronic disease are going to have huge impacts on our, um, our budgets in the future. So I know in South Australia some years ago they did uh, research that showed that the health budget was growing at a faster rate than the state budget would overtake it by, I think it was 2020, they said at the time. So it's not only it's a human right for us to be looking at food insecurity and its impacts, but it's also an economic necessity given that there's a lot of correlation between um, chronic disease. Who gets chronic disease is not accidental. It tends to be concentrated in areas where people have got poor diets, have got lots of reasons to have access to poor diets, um, and um, it, it's, a co it's a compounding issue about um, being poor, basically. Um, just quickly, who is food insecure? It's no surprises. People living in poverty and a whole lot of other groups who are marginal for various, marginalised for various reasons. Um, causes of food insecurity, um, there's, a, there's a whole complex of causes, um, both long-term and short-term. Amongst long-term causes, obviously, having a low income, living in poverty, 
uh, or unemployment, but also things like living a long distance from shops, so that if you haven't got your own transport and travelling, if you go, if anybody's travelled much in southwest Sydney, it can be hard to just find a, a shop that's got good fresh produce in it. You'll find that there's a lot of takeaway shops um, and not many, especially in local areas. Um, and obviously then things like high utility costs. In the short term, there's many, many people who are only a hair's breadth away from food insecurity. So people whose lives might be going along fine, but something unexpected happens. Um, these kind of daily emergencies in life that can mean that from one week to the next somebody's carefully balanced budget pushes them into food insecurity. Um, changes in circumstances, losing your job. We have a lot of people that we come across who've had some kind of industrial accident at work and they may have had, um, they may have had a, a nice life with plenty of holidays or um, somewhere, a second home down the coast, um, have an accident, suddenly they're in a different um, situation in terms of income. Um, it can turn somebody's life from one moment to the next. Um, there are also external factors like we saw in the um, around about 2007 when there was, uh, we had drought, um, there was a lot of crop failure around the world, so we had lots of speculation going on in food prices, so food prices rose very suddenly. So no matter how well you're trying to balance your budget, if you've got those kind of external pressures, um, that can be a problem. Or it might be as simple as a local corner shop that's always had good fruit and veg um, gives into pressure from the supermarkets and supermarkets are not um, backward in, in trying to get rid of competition. Um, I've called this one, what do we know and what do we need to know, because actually in food security there's not very good consistent reporting um, of data. So national, um, national reporting will tend to show about 4 to 5%, which we might think, if you think in scientific terms, 5% doesn't count. You know, as long as we got 0.05, then we say that's all right. If you apply that in food security, you might say 5% doesn't count, but 5% of a population of, a mil of 20 million people is about a million people. I think that's quite shocking to most people that that number of people in Australia today with our apparent abundant food could be food insecure. Also, what does it actually mean to say that number of people are food insecure? Um, another way of looking at it is what, what does it actually mean in terms of people's... Um, food and what, you know, whether, we're, whether we're providing people enough money, for example, on, on um, social security supports to be able to buy healthy food. So we do a lot of, in health promotion, we do a lot of exhorting of people of the right kind of foods to eat to keep themselves healthy. But um, this is just one example that was um, done by Monash University last year looking at what percentage of, a, of different family types and what percentage of a central income would they need to buy healthy food. They've calculated at 32%. The Cancer Council a few years ago reckoned you took your 56% if you're on a low income to be able to buy healthy food. So if you're spending 50% on healthy food, how are you supporting the rest of your life? Then there's also the fact that sometimes, and, and I think this has been reported by several people, that um, the prices are not always equal, the price changes are not always equal. So between 2012 and 14, the cost of fruit and vegetables rose considerably, whereas the cost of non-core foods like sugar, salt added, um, drinks decreased. So that obviously can have a big impact too. Um, this is from a food bank um, survey in uh, 2013. Um, one of the things that food bank has been finding, and they're regu doing regular reports now looking at people who are using their services, and one of the things they're finding is that um, there's more and more of working poor who are needing to use their services and they also reported that um, 
right number slide. Um, or they didn't report, but in, in um, uh, Why Hunger, which is a youth, uh, youth a homeless youth um, particular project, found that 70% 70 70 of people in, um, who had contact with those specialist homelessness services were in food insecure, and 40% severely food insecure. That's when people are experiencing hunger as well. Um, we don't do an awful lot of um, investigation into particular groups like refugees, so although that might be a small percentage overall who are accessing their services. Um, a 2010 report in Western Australia found that 71% of refugee households were food insecure. Again, it's not surprising because if you just arrive in the country and you maybe don't have very secure accommodation, you might be living quite far away from shops, uh, may not have very much English, may find it difficult to get a job. So it's not a surprise, it's just very shocking to think that levels can be so high amongst some communities. Um, food, uh, food Bank has also done a, um, a survey focusing on children because they've got a big breakfast program. So they're advocating at the moment to try and get better funding to, to fund breakfast programs across the state. Um, they found that 14% of students were going to school without breakfast. And they've calculated that if kids are hungry and, and can't concentrate, they might be losing up to two hours a day in terms of their educational outcome. And I think that's the kind of thing that's very important for us to bear in mind that that's one example of the way that just lacking food can then have that impact that if kids are not able to concentrate in the classroom, they're not getting the academic outcomes, they may get a reputation for behavioural problems, um, which might mean that they then don't want to school because they're getting disciplined. So it can have a, a very lifelong impact, something as simple as, as whether, whether or not kids are going to school, having eaten. Um, in their... Um, when they did a survey that, that in Western Australia, because they've, they've got comprehensive programmes there, they found that... Um, 92% of the staff who, where they had breakfast programs thought that it improved the social skills and behaviour of the kids. Anglicare has done some great work, again, looking at what the impact can be on individuals of food insecurity. Um, and I think this is a striking slide because the emotional problems are, are cited by more people or, or at a higher level of importance than the physical impact in terms of hunger. Um, so if you look at number one, emotional difficulty, anger, irritability, and think about the impact that can then have on families and on family relationships. Um, if you look at the third one, energy, um, lethargy, lower concentration. Again, if you're being exhausted to go out and get a job, but if you're not being able to eat enough, you're maybe skipping meals because you're trying to feed your kids, um, how much harder is it to do if you're, if you're suffering from some of those impacts? And uh, there was a quote um, in a recent article by Parity, which is a homelessness magazine that, that looked at, in particular at um, food insecurity. Um, there's a quote from somebody who said, I had a period of about six weeks my, where my only sustenance was tea, coffee and a dollar bag of Doritos that I managed to make last five days at a time. I was showing up to services with no fuel in my tank, yet expected to be clear thinking and rational. Nobody thought to ask what was the last time I ate. It made life almost impossible. I was attempting to make life decisions with no sugar in my blood and an incredibly light head. And I think, again, that's the kind of impact we often don't think about, that if people haven't eaten, but we're also trying to get them to sign on to training courses or think about going for jobs. Um, it's hard. Um, the, although we, we know more about food insecurity now, it's a, it's a problem that still seems to be on the rise. Um, Food Bank has reported this year that um, they had an 8% increase in people seeking food relief last year. 
a lot of people being, people being turned away. <coughs> Generation Y being almost twice as likely to experience food insecurity and it happening very regularly for quite a number of people. On the flip side of that, um, people receiving food relief reported um, not only less hunger but also things like being able to plan for the better for the future and being more able to look for work. Um, switching from there to some of the programmes that we've run in, in South West Sydney and, and I'm just going to gallop through these. Because the, the, um, what underpins food insecurity is so complex, it means that there are potentially a whole lot of things that you can do to try and address it. Um, these are two pictures from a couple of community kitchens that we've run in, in um, South West Sydney. Uh, an Aboriginal one at the medical centre and one for African men. African men traditionally don't cook, but there was a whole lot of people who were arriving here and their wives were getting uh, work and um, they were at home looking after the kids with no idea about how to cook. So we set up a class for them on their own because they didn't want the shame of, of working with their wives. Community kitchens are a great way to um, counter social isolation that may be caused by food insecurity and a way of sharing cooking skills without being as, as patronising as cooking classes. Um, we do quite a bit of work with kids trying to introduce um, uh, good cooking practice and good cooking habits in the school holidays. Um, this is not directly in, in my area, but it's, it, it was done with South West Sydney and, and Sydney a uh, couple of years ago. Um, does anybody know about the Why Hunger Project, Youth Hunger? They work with, it was a project I just quoted where they work with young people from refuges and other places and they've come up with a couple of cookbooks that are very much consulted with and developed and designed by and for young people working in refuges because they had such high levels of food insecurity. Um, we've also done quite a few um, food supermarkets, so that's where we, we, um, we get food from places like Food Bank um, or other local donors and people then can come and shop for their own food. Um, this was the first one we set up in Warwick Farm and it was successful in addressing food insecurity for people. We had, we had quite high percentages of people using that food market who were getting sort of up to 50% of their daily needs. We have fresh foods and, and staple foods. Um, this is one in Tarmor that set up. It set up about um, nine months ago. Within six months it had 320 members, I think, and it was a really important um, um, service when they had those floods recently in Camden. Did it count or Picton? Picton, I think, Picton. Um, they had a, 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 a lot of people who had to go and use the service. Um, and that's, is <laughs> I was unable to transfer the image, so I've had to cut and paste and copy, so it's not very clear. But this is part of their promotion, showing how much somebody might pay from a ma major grocery store and how much um, goods people can get from paying at the community pantry. Um, we set up gardens in quite a number of places. Now, gardens are never going to solve food insecurity, but there can be ways for people to grow culturally appropriate foods they might not readily be able to get in Australia. Um, they're also a good way for people to come and connect in with other people. And quite often we find the way to, to um, deal with food insecurity is to hook people in with a range of other social services which they may, ne may not know about because they've become isolated. That might be how to, get, how to do part payments of your electricity, how to access a no-interest loan scheme, those kind of things which may be there to assist people they don't know about. Um, this is a garden in Fairfield High School where um, a lot of the people were actually farmers from um, Myanmar um, and they went on to develop mini farms and start to um, um, do horticulture training. So we tried to look at ways of building in employment opportunities because that's um, obviously a, a better way to, in the long term to deal with somebody's food insecurity is to look at trying to create employment opportunities as well. So when we have 
things like community kitchens, we get people to do safe food handling, entry level qualification for working in um, aged care or, or early child care. Um, so this is a group that was formed little social catering enterprise and I think they've done about 200 jobs during the first year for all kinds of government departments and community organisations. Um, just briefly, um, I just wanted to touch on a couple of, of where we feel there's kind of become wide ramifications now from the work. So this is an issue of parity, which is a homelessness magazine um, that uh, focused on food security in its March, I think March issue. So that's a, if you want to have a look at that, there's a lot of very good um, articles in there. So it's, it's good to see that being, it's good to see the work being collected and put together for other people to access. Um, that was a, um, it's really going over the same ground, just saying that um, from a, a member of a, a cafe meals program in the in um, uh, Yarra Cafe, um, just saying what the difference that um, eating probably makes to somebody. And I think we can do lots of bits and pieces of work to alleviate food insecurity, but really the system and structure of inequality that produces this need, we've, we've come to accept it, and I think uh, <coughs> probably most of you would agree that that's not acceptable. So we think that human, uh, healthy food is a human right, and I think Luke will be talking later a bit about the Right to Food organisation. I've galloped. I've finished. Thank you. Thank you for that wonderful talk. Amazing overview. Oh, I was going to say, um, so I was asked to talk a little bit about um, possible responses to food insecurity, um, particularly using where I work, Second Bite, as sort of our model as an example of that. But I think probably what I'll end up doing is just expanding more on, on one of those projects that Liz has, one of the many issues kind of you've um, shown, I'll be doing more an in-depth, you know, look at one of those sort of things. Okay, so as we've heard, uh, a lot of people in Australia experience food insecurity, um, somewhere around 1.2 million people, and at the same time, we know Australians throw out an amazing amount of food every year as well. So. Second Bite was founded in 2005 with the idea of using uh, one of these problems as a solution to the other. So what we do is we rescue food which is perfectly edible and is headed for landfill and we use that to contribute toward um, charities, organisations who are providing free or subsidised meals. So in 2015 uh, we rescued and redistributed about 7 million kilos worth of food which is enough for 14 million healthy meals. So as well as the human impact, there is also a huge environmental impact that is good to be aware of as well with our work, but it's not the major focus of our organisation or of our talk today. Um, so at Second Bite, we have a commitment to rescuing and redistributing fresh food, which means that 95% of what we collect has to fit within the five core food groups of the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating, and 75% has to be fruit and vegetables. The reason for that is twofold. Uh, firstly, our research indicates that people accessing emergency food relief are often getting 50% um, or more of the daily intake from that source, so really the onus is on those programs is to be providing nutritionally adequate food. Uh, and secondly, um, all Australians, but particularly lower income Australians, people at risk of food insecurity, like Liz has mentioned, are um, at risk of diet-related diseases. So in fact, the risk of obesity is 
to 40% higher in people who experience food insecurity. So the, um, you know, all Australians seem to have more fruits and vegetables for particularly low-income Australians. Okay, so um, as well as being a part of emergency food relief in Australia, Second Bite is also interested in looking at ways to increase community capacity um, to overcome some of the determinants of food security. So emergency food relief is meant to be just that, something that is used in times of crisis, um, but not something you use ongoing. But too many times, and oftentimes, people end up using that all the time. Uh, and so to this end, we have developed two different nutrition education programs. Um, firstly, Foodmate, which is aimed at community members, people experiencing food insecurity, and FreshNed, which is aimed at people working within community organisations providing free or subsidised food to try and increase capacity to deal with some of the determinants of food insecurity. Um, both of these programs are train-the-trainer models, which means that we work alongside, we collaborate with individuals and organisations who are already working in the, um, the sector to help them increase their skills and capacity to work around food insecurity determinants with the people and the organisations they're already working in. So that model is quite important so that it's a capacity building model um, and also so that it becomes a scalable and sustainable approach. And we're also leveraging relationships that are already, like client relationships that are already established so that we have more chance of having a positive impact and more of a long-term impact because we're working with caseworkers who are already working with people experiencing food insecurity so the messages they learn through doing the program can be re reiterated after the program has finished. So Foodmate um, is an eight-week program. Uh, it's, um, it's delivered within um, community organisations uh, by staff who we've trained from that organisation in how to deliver the program. And we also train a locally based health professional, a health promotion officer or a community dietitian who acts as a facilitator for their program. Um, so it works on three major strategies, which is teaching people fresh food and cooking skills through practical involvement in cooking, uh, delivering nutrition education through budget, um, through, sorry, on things like budgeting, um, healthy eating, recipe modification, through both fact sheets and um, interactive games, and establishing community connections for people um, by going out and doing field trips and meeting uh, people in the local area who are involved in food programs, uh, affordable food outlets, um, health services in the local area. And it's also about creating a lot of local relationships for people. So the facilitator who we recruit is ideally someone who's working in that local area in a health capacity so they can help with pathways, referral pathways for participants post-program and there's that relationship there that participants can draw on in the future. So here's some photos from a Foodmate program. Um, the main thing I wanted to show there was the food hampers. So um, every eight weeks of the program, participants get to take home a hamper of fresh food that we provide with the idea that um, they can practice what they're learning in class at home. Sometimes they bring in photos the next week to show that sort of thing, but it's hopefully um, enabling behaviour change by putting it into practice. This is just showing um, one of the really important parts of the program, which is the field trip, which is, as I said, where we're, as I said, where we're linking people in with their local community. So that um, varies program to program depending on where it's located. Um, for example, in Melbourne, people often go to Footscray Market and there's a big emphasis there on making sure that participants can get there repeatedly. So we're trying to find ways that people have access to affordable food after the program finishes and the hampers stop. So you might sort of take someone right through how they would get there from their house using public transport. Other times, if there's mobility issues, you might try and link in with um, free community transport. But all of these things are taken into account between the delivery team and the, the facilitator. 
Um, so we have looked at the impacts of FoodMate, um, particularly between 2008 and 2012 when the program was being developed um, in Tasmania and Victoria. Um, and uh, that was done through um, pre and post um, participant questionnaires and also focus groups. So it was shown that there was reduced reliance on emergency <coughs> food relief a quote there from a participant saying, yeah, the group doesn't provide just like recipes and how to cook them. It also provides like where to get cheap fruit and vegetables like Footscray Market, for example. That's an awesome place. Um, increases confidence and food independence. Now I know how to eat without relying on food from a carton. Foodmate teaches you the basics again so you can get back into the kitchen. And increases motivation and ability to select and prepare a healthy diet, whether that means changing, as the participant in that example there, um, change their breakfast cereal and other participants started using less salt in their food. Um, increases understanding of how to read food labels which enables healthier choices, increases skills in um, food shopping and budgeting, improves food storage and safety practices. We see increased consumption of fruits and vegetables. Um, also things to do with psychosocial factors which are really really important with the program and come out a lot because it is a group program. Um, so feelings of accomplishment and self-esteem. I feel pleased with myself after completing Foodmate. It was great to work in a team. I enjoyed coming together with a group each week. Those social connections built through shared experiences get people more active in their community oftentimes and people will say that they're more likely to rely on friends for support, ask for support again or access community services after the program. So we're very lucky to be able to offer Foodmate in Sydney at the moment thanks to um, City of Sydney funding. Um, and at the moment there are five Foodmate programs underway in various organisations in City of Sydney. The, those photos there are showing um, training facilitators to assist with the program and then the other is a photo from Glebe Youth Service where I trained um, the programs manager there and two of his staff to deliver Foodmate. Um, but we're always happy to hear um, any other organisations who would like to learn how to do Foodmate and put Foodmate into practice and also for people with a health background who would like to be volunteer facilitators on Foodmate. So FreshNed um, involves four hands-on training um, modules which are delivered in an interactive workshop um, style where you'll have representatives from different community organisations who are involved in providing food to people. Um, they go through... We talk about food security, understanding it, its causes and consequences, how you might overcome some of those, um, especially looking at sort of referral services that people could refer their clients to, um, healthy eating, food safety and food safety legislation within community food programs, um, and really important module about monitoring and evaluation of programs. So uh, Liz has kind of touched on who, there's not a lot of research done around food insecurity in Australia and community food programs are often, they have great access to people who are experiencing that problem. So if they start to do more research on that, we can attract better funding, we can start to understand the problem more. Uh, so this, so FreshNet is about increasing capacity, upskilling so that people can do that more effectively in their organisations. And ideally we're leading towards ha having each organisation develop a food and nutrition policy. So that will happen, um, the people who attend training will then go back to their organisation and start to look at things, see what could be changed, identify things that might not be according to best practice at the moment, and then set out a strategy for how that could be changed with the help of the facilitator, the local facilitator who we've also trained. Um, and together with our support, we see changes over, the, over four to six months after. So there's some photos of Fresh Ned. 
Um, so FreshNet has also had an impact assessment during its pilot phase um, and it was shown that six months after FreshNet there were changes happening in the quality of food provided in food parcels and community meals, that food was done more safely, uh, staff had more confidence talking to the people about food and nutrition um, and there was even sometimes new programs were springing up um, to meet different, um, make sure that their operations are culturally and appropriate and socially inclusive and there was more networking in the sector from the group um, <coughs> interactive workshops. So similarly we were very lucky to roll, roll out FreshNed in the City of Sydney in 2014 and 15 um, with 20 community food programs and, and achieved some good outcomes in terms of the quality or the healthfulness of food provided in um, community food programs, let more fruits and vegetables, less discretionary items. Uh, so this is the, uh, my final slide which is just showing our approach of how tackling the issue from a few different angles, hopefully we kind of make some inroads into um, reducing food insecurity, whether that be having emergency food relief in times of crisis but also having those other two approaches to trying to reduce some of the chronic determinants. That is all. Hello. Um, for you, those of you who weren't here when we started, uh, my name is Luke Craven and I'm a PhD student here at the University of Sydney and do a lot of work on food insecurity, particularly with new migrant communities. But I also have a, sort of a, a larger interest in the complexity of the problem from a policy perspective um, and what that means for the way that different policymakers can understand the problem and seek to tackle it. I'd also just like to reiterate what, what Liz said and it's really heartening to see a, a room with this many attendees um, interested to hear about food and security. Um, three years ago when I started my PhD, I, I, we just didn't have this level of interest. Um, and I think part of that is that we didn't have a high level of awareness around the fact that the problem did exist in Australia uh, and did it exist to the extent um, that we're hopefully all aware that it does. So food and nutrition insecurity is one of those issues that falls through the gaps um, of the policy making space here in Australia. Um, so no department really has ownership of it, nor does any level of government. So right, it, it, federal level, state level and local level, everyone's running different programs. Often there's not a lot of harmony between those programs and certainly different levels of government uh, and different departments don't know what each other are doing. Um, and that leads to a situation in which often we, we stagnate um, with progress on tackling the issue. But when we also say that uh, food insecurity is complex, it means that it's the cause and consequence of a whole other range of injustices and problems um, in society. And, and Liz spoke to that um, when, when she explained, for instance, that for a mother uh, in Western Sydney, the primary cause of her um, seeking out emergency food relief might be the start of a school year and the fact that she has to buy four new pairs of um, black shoes, um, right, for mandatory requirement for her kids going to school, um, suddenly that's $320 that's in an already tight budget that she can't cover. Uh, it pushes her into a situation of food insecurity for four to five weeks. But it also might just be income, there's stress and shame and stigma and all of these things um, that kind of mix around in a big melting pot um, and produce food insecurity. So what I want to do quickly this evening um, is try and give a set of tools to understand 
um, or give a language to that complexity uh, and then suggest um, one strategy, but I think a really important strategy that none of us are very good at um, that might help to address it. And I think that this is just the beginning, um, part of a much larger conversation. So the first thing to say is that food and nutrition uh, insecurity have significant um, individual and societal costs that we seldom talk about. So Liz has already covered some of these. So for instance, poor, house, poor, poor health, sorry, reduced educational outcomes and stress and stigma. Um, and I'll just, these are very crude diagrams, but they, they illustrate a point um, which is that when we think about food insecurity as a cause of a, a range of problems, you can represent it like this with the arrows and say that food insecurity has a high, a high out degree. So in this diagram, food and nutrition insecurity has an out degree of three, meaning it causes three other problems. Um, so when I do this work with, for instance, migrant populations, they'll often, when we do participatory mapping exercises, say that their food insecurity has an out degree of 30, right, which is big, um, and suggests that food insecurity has a whole range of impacts in their lives. It's not just the fact that they can't eat or can't eat well. It, are, it is these other things. Often it are those psychosocial factors that, again, Teague and, and, and Liz have covered. One of the things that when we talk about the health impacts um, of food insecurity, people talk about the double burden, right? So Tegan mentioned um, that those uh, that struggle with food insecurity are at higher risk of um, being overweight or obese. There's obviously a health system cost to that. But there's a health system cost at the other end as well of hunger and malnutrition that we don't measure or talk about in Australia. So some preliminary work the University of Tasmania has done shown with their rates of food insecurity in state, the cost of the healthcare system is probably $70 million a year. Um, now, if you think about that vis-a-vis -vis New South Wales, where we have probably similar levels of food insecurity, that's a significant cost to, to the healthcare system. That's worsening, um, and we generally don't spend that much money on community-based programs or deeper level sort of social determinants of health prevention to think about tackling it. But second, um, food insecurity is caused by a whole range of other factors that themselves interact with and affect one another. Um, so the language here would be to say that food insecurity in this diagram, crudely, uh, has an in degree of three. That is, it has three arrows pointing to it. And again, when I, when I do this work with low-income communities, they can identify a whole range of causes that point to food insecurity. From, from the mother that has you know, shoes that need to push out her budget to the fact that childcare is often unavailable which stops people getting to the supermarket, to low incomes, to public transport and all of these things again in the big melting pot. But the point is um, that this language I think helps us better understand what complexity means when we, when we talk about food insecurity. Um, and what really complicates um, this is that when you put these two pieces of the puzzle together, you get something that looks like this, which is by no means linear, right? And I think that's one of the, the key points I want to get across this evening. So you've got stress and stigma that operate on both sides of, of that diagram, which, which suggests that there's a sort of vicious cycle there, that when people can't access good, healthy food and that stresses them out or they feel stigma about that problem, that in turn sort of uh, aggravates the initial condition. 
So while people are stressed about being food insecure um, and food insecure because they are stressed, that's a very difficult bind to, to break them out of. Um, or the fact that poor educational outcomes and poor health um, contribute to people likely being stuck in, in lower income jobs. Um, and there's really not a lot of data that we know about this across the life course yet. Um, but I think it's fair to say that you know, children that go to school hungry are probably at a higher risk um, of ending up in jobs that make them more likely to be food insecure. And obviously this picture is much bigger if you think about what that looks like in a non-stylized diagram. But I think with even seven things on the screen, it starts to get really messy. And so when you've got 30 or 40 or 50 different causes and you've got a policy bureaucracy which is naturally siloed, which doesn't like talking to one another, um, and which often looks at a picture like that, and some of you will know the foresight obesity map from, from the UK, and the response from the UK policy-making space to that map has been to say, crap, that's really complex. We don't really know what to do about that. Um, and so what can, we, what can we do by moving that language um, to a conversation of um, what, what we can actually do to address complexity? So I'd like to suggest that one of the key strategies that we need to be better at for addressing complexity is um, storytelling or being better at telling, telling stories. And one of the reasons for that is because, as we've all said tonight, food insecurity is a highly idiosyncratic problem. So for one person, it will be very different from someone else. And yet, if we look at that at a population level, there will be patterns that we'll be able to, to see so that policymakers can, can pull levers more effectively. But telling stories in a way that draws on that population level data and sort of knits it together um, with, with the story of you know, the, the migrant family uh, that lives in Auburn um, or the person that uses the Food for Life market in Warwick Farm um, are the kind of stories that we need to tell if we're going to start to get people on site. So I think we need to be better as both researchers and policy makers at knitting together these stories. And I think it's historically something we've been really woeful um, at, at doing. Um, so I think the, the power of these stories is that they can literally humanise and, and give life to numbers and data. And I brought some very recent books that have been written, which I'd recommend to everyone because I think they, they do it effectively and they tell the story of one, one uh, sort of living on a low income in America and the other um, sort of an ethnography of food bank use uh, in the UK. So that is hunger pains and uh, $2 a day living on a low income in America, or almost nothing in America. Um, and what both these books do is tell between sort of four and ten stories, individual stories from people that the authors have had contact with respectively. But tell those stories by weaving them in, in, in this case with Trussell Trust data on the causes, consequences and incidence rates of food insecurity in, in the UK through food banks, and in this case through like high-level census data um, from from the US. But it's it's the way that the sort of higher-level statistical data sits and is told through those individual stories, which I think does does justice to the food insecure themselves. So often, I was saying this um, to a different room last week, but so often I go to events. Um, on this issue where someone will almost say glibly 
how nice would it, would it have been to have someone who was actually struggling with this problem here to speak. Um, and it happens almost at every single event uh, and yet it never happens. And I think one of the reasons that we dehumanise the problem is because we don't have stories like these ones and we don't make space to live in, listen to the actual experience um, of those that face food insecurity. So how do we begin to tell these stories in Australia? And again, both Liz and Tegan have flagged how little data we have um, really about food insecurity in Australia. So you know, even the fact that Liz cites 1 million and Tegan cites 1.2 million as population level statistics shows that we don't have a, a sort of a cohesive body of evidence uh, around this. Um, the Australian government doesn't, for instance, measure food insecurity really at the population level in a comprehensive way. The US does, um, Canada does, the UK um, all-party working group on ending hunger has, uh, has just announced in the past couple of days that they've had agreement from a conservative government in the UK to begin measuring food insecurity next year. It's shocking to me that the Australian government doesn't want to have a conversation about measuring food insecurity. Because unless we start to measure the problem, as you know, people kind of say, uh, what have I put here? It's basically, you know, the, the strange reality of the world is what we measure matters. Um, so if we don't, if we don't measure it, um, I think we're going to find ourselves in five years' time in a similar, if not worse, position to the one we are now. Um, the second thing to say is that a lot of, from the research perspective, there's not a lot of funding around for this kind of work, sort of community-based food insecurity work. Um, it's because, again, it kind of falls into a bit of a gap. Um, it, it's maybe community nutrition, it's maybe something else entirely, and no one really knows um, how to sell that kind of project, and the funding agencies historically haven't been good at funding this kind of, of work. I think that's something we need to address if we're going to see ongoing and increased collaborations between um, policymakers and academics. But I think we also need to recognise that both of those things, research and policymaking, need to be rooted in real life and real people's stories um, so that we need to all explore how we can work more fully alongside people experiencing poverty and food insecurity. Uh, just to finish, I think that the complexity of everyday life is really only made clear um, by making space to hear and listen to those stories. And I think together, uh, as researchers, policymakers, and, and community members, community service providers, um, that we have to find ways to tell them that makes it impossible to turn away. Great, thanks uh, to, to everyone for three great talks. So now we do want uh, everyone up front and we're just going to open the questions. I saw a mic a second ago. I wasn't going to sit on it. Um, so we've got a little more than a half an hour, but uh, let's try and keep questions. I know Luke said we really need to hear stories, but maybe not right now. Um, so let's try and, uh, and keep uh, the questions succinct uh, so we can get as many people talking as possible. So where shall we start? Or should I start? Okay. In, in the back. Luke, you mentioned um, the fact that this is a fragmented problem. 
that there's no central government um, approach to, for example, the concept of food insecurity. You mentioned, though, that in Canada and the UK they measure it. What's the trigger point to get a more focused approach out of government here? trust you to put me on the spot, Tim. Um, so I think one of the things that, uh, you know, at the outset we probably don't have the political leadership in Australia at, at the moment or someone that's willing to really take on the issue as their own um, and bang the drum, you know, so that the minister says and the department does. One of the things that um, both Canada um, and actually New Zealand... Woo, um, uh, are thinking about doing is implementing um, a new position sort of as Minister for Food, for instance, um, so that even though the policy responsibility um, for the various things that you need to do to deal with food insecurity is fragmented across departments, there's one figurehead that can aggregate all of that stuff but also provide leadership uh, across those departments. I mean, there are a whole range of different things you, you could do um, Historically, it's just been that, for instance, the, the US has measured it for a very, very long time. Um, I think in in, uh, in the UK, the impetus to start measuring it has been that post-GFC uh, and since a lot of austerity measures in the UK, food bank use has just skyrocketed um, and there's been a huge national discussion. Uh, there's almost not a day that goes by that there's not a Guardian article about food insecurity, for instance. We don't have that conversation in Australia yet either. Uh, and so I think it's it's either political leadership or sort of, uh, increasing population level knowledge about about the issue. No, I mean I, I don't know what can trigger it because I think maybe it needs to come from different angles, which is why we sometimes we, we kind of hover between saying it's a human right and something we need to address as a human right and trying to think about a way to frame it in that way and then also looking at an economic necessity because I don't think the, the people are very um, engaged obviously in the debate around overweight and obesity but I still don't think I mean I work for the health service and I don't think the health service has really taken has really taken on I think it's an uncomfortable thing to take on really looking at where most of that sits and why it sits there so we don't really that hasn't really become a focus of the action in health um, as yet and so and while it's not only a health issue that it's a very big issue for health um, so I think, you know, try, trying to look at is, is other ways that we can take advantage of the fact there's a big focus on overweight and obesity at the moment to kind of hitch this issue on. And so that might, that might be a, a good way to do it from a health point of view or from an economic point of view. At the same time, personally, I don't want to lose sight of that issue about human rights because I think it's a really important um, rights issue. So we're not just looking at labelling everybody as overweight and obese and that's why we're concerned about food insecurity. When we've looked at the implications it has on people's life and lifetime chances, I think it's a really it's an important rights issue as well. Next up. And can I get folks to introduce themselves or identify themselves? Thanks. Hello, uh, George Papanikolas, my name. Um, Actually, I've got a question for each of you individually, but they kind of overlap a little bit. Uh, firstly, to, to Elizabeth, because you work in southwestern Sydney, um, which I, where I live, uh, there's a lot of um, uh, cultural practices around food in terms of uh, sort of uh, um, foods that uh, certain uh, communities enjoy, which aren't necessarily good for them in the large quantities that are often available to them here, which might not be available to them in their home country. Um, 
Oh, I, I can never get out of my mind. Uh, at further out west in Sydney, I think it was Empton, out uh, near Mount Druid Way, some Pacific Islander uh, going into a, uh, a store, a local uh, Pacific Island supermarket, and there was a hot food display in the back, of which my arteries clogged just looking at it because it was deep fried something. <laughs> but he, he literally came out with this guy, Pacific Islander, rather obese, with a couple of buckets worth. Um, and ob- he was obviously quite obese and he was obviously uh, passing it on to his, the rest of his family but that's just <coughs> emblematic of some of the things that happen. So th- the first question is how do you get around this idea of uh, cultural practices particularly where there's great food availability, this ties in with the idea of food insecurity being not necessarily a lack of food but a lack of the right kind of food or too much of the wrong kind of food. So that one... Uh, Next question is uh, to Tegan, if I can. There's increasing evidence that um, it's not just what kind of food you have, but the combinations of food you have as well that are becoming increasingly important as a research thing. And uh, we've seen with the changes in the food pyramid, which has changed into the food barrel in terms of shape, in terms of changes, emphasis, things like carbohydrates, um, how can we be more nimble in um, um, uh, adjusting to changes uh, in the research and not having this huge long lag time where you develop marketing campaigns which are out of date as soon as you print up the relevant material. And and to Luke, <laughs> if I can uh, stretch the finship here, um, I just wanted to uh, ask, uh, what, in terms of government programs, um, how much emphasis is actually put on, on, on nutrition as a primary source of uh, uh, health um, um, uh, policy because I know, for example, with medical uh, degrees, I mean, some ridiculous number of hours that were uh, allotted to nutrition. I mean, literally like about three to six hours in a whole five, six year degree based on nutrition. So um, how is it going in terms of trying to put the emphasis uh, in government policy on nutrition as a primary source of, uh, of uh, health policy? Sorry if I stretched the friendship there. Um, look, I, it's, it's hard to know where to begin because there's so many things you could say in re- reply to what you're saying. I mean, in terms of, kind of some cultural practices, like any of us, we've all got lots of cultural practices. I mean, we have a celebration. We have, we all go out and buy. You know, we have cakes and, and creams, and you know, it's it's not it's not overseas people or you know, it's not it's not any migrants. We've, there's lots of um, things which are, you have treats because they're suitable for you know occasional use, but not all the time. Um, I think some of the kind of things you're talking about in terms of takeaway shops and what's available, sometimes the quickest way to <coughs> fill up your family is on some of those foods. So when we do the kind of community kitchens, obviously we're talking quite a lot about um, how you can substitute things, how you can substitute better fats or how you can use less salt and use more herbs, you know, those kind of very practical things. But I know, you know, there's a lot more that could be done. Victoria is much better in terms of um, government of, of working on looking at food environments. So... You know, they've been advocating in Victoria for a long time to, tr- to issues like saying that there should be um, fresh fruit and vegetables available within the, a walking distance of people's homes, which might have implications then for planning departments and what, um, c- what um, conditions are made for developers. I remember some years ago in the States when developers wanted to build a, another lot of high-rise flats, they had to subsidise a corner store for a certain number of years, which wasn't only about fresh fruit and vegetables, it was also about building in social inclusion so that older people could go downstairs to the shop and young kids could go downstairs to the shops and there was somebody who was like a community pivot. So there's, there's a lot... 
Well, I mean, community gardens can be one. I mean, that, that can grow some of the kind of um, fruit and vegetables that people want. But it's, you know, it's a very complex thing to unpick. And I think at the moment we tend to hammer individuals and their behaviours. I remember when Tony Abbott said, you know, it's up to parents what they put in the mouths of their kids, as though the whole advertising industry has no bearing on any of this. <laughs> you know, and we're, we're hopeless at regulating the junk food ads people who come from England to here are horrified by what's on our television screens at an hour that all kids are watching. And, you know, I think things like that have a, also have a big impact on um, how families make choices. And we, we, don't, we don't address that at all. Uh, so I think, uh, maybe to work backwards on your question, you're absolutely right that um, in the medical field, uh, nutrition probably isn't given as much prominence as it, as it should be. Um, now, one of the things that's being trialled in places like Canada and the US at the moment are GPs as a primary point of intervention on food insecurity um, because they have good relationships with families and they can refer people on to different services and social welfare services that might be able to help address the deeper causes of the problem. Um, but one of the challenges that they've faced in those programs is that GPs don't feel that they know enough about nutrition um, or, or food or more holistic health issues to be able to have those conversations with their clients. So I think that that's true of um, clinical staff or, or GPs. Um, I think it's also true perhaps of the way that um, health policymakers frame problems. Um, so it's not that they don't have a, a nutrition literacy. I think it's that they're probably too nutrition focused actually in, inside New South Wales health at the population level. Um, and so what I mean by that is, you know, most of our food policy is, is sort of reformulation and health stars and too much salt, um, whereas um, there's less of a focus on these broader social determinants of food access. Um, and because there's not that focus, there isn't the focus on equity and inequality um, and the way that those things emerge through the food system and, and tend to impact low-income households. Um, so, as I understand it, the question is kind of about how do we get um, the translation of research to practice happening more quickly? Um, well, I don't know if I'm the most qualified person to try and answer that question. Um, one thing I was thinking is sort of, um, I think while nutritional science is always changing, the, the broad picture really doesn't, I don't think doesn't change that much. If you can get the broad basics right, you're kind of a lot of the way there. And also what we tell people to do is so far from what they end up actually doing. Like behaviour change is, is such a hard thing to get to happen that in a way the specifics, the minutiae of what we say may not be <laughs> that important. Like if you can get people, you know, eating less and eating more fruits and vegetables and moving more, those few basic things, then you're kind of, you're making such a big difference. Um, yeah. Uh, other than, um, I don't know, I guess reviewing you know, guidelines sooner. But I think, I guess we take sort of a risk minimisation, a harm minimisation approach and we, we are slow to put, you know, change um, government guidelines. But that's because we want to really review things over and over again and make sure before we make, because things do change, you know, you've got this new thing. The other thing I was thinking though was that I guess with the media now, often, you know, patients and clients, they do get a lot of information about, they read all those things in the paper and the studies and they come to you and ask questions. So, in a way, that's sort of a route around what the guidelines say. But it's not always that beneficial because a lot of it is very faddish and it's just one thing and it's not taking into account all the factors. And I think that's what the guide, like our government guidelines do, is they have to take into account so many different variables and suit whole populations, not just 
particular groups of people. Thanks. My name's Paul. I'm just an interested community member. Um, I often feel very um, overwhelmed by many of the problems in our society and this is one of them that I sometimes become so cynical about our approach that seems to reward people who can buy a cheap product, add a few cheap ingredients, sugar, fat, salt and some flavourings to and sell it to people um, and make, if they make a lot of money out of it they're almost lauded. You know, we, we put people on a pedestal in many cases and you know, then, as somebody said, you know, if, if people choose to eat that, well, they're stupid and they should know better. And we don't really have a lot of education. We have a lot of newspapers and that like to report a lot of stuff that many people in poorer socioeconomic areas read. There's not a lot of information in there and that's controlled, again, by corporate um, people that make a lot of money by selling that stuff. So how can I... The question is, how can I, as someone who does feel a bit overwhelmed get involved in some way where I can make a difference? One of the things that neither uh, Liz or I spoke about, um, and I actually talk a little bit of, of history about this, so um, the sort of community food security sector in Australia has been really fragmented as well. So people like you that are sort of generally interested in the problem, but also people like Liz Teagan and I, um, who three years ago might not have known uh, who each other were um, because there weren't those connections uh, in place that enabled us to have these conversations. Um, one of the things that um, Liz and I have been involved in setting up is a group called the Australian Right to Food Coalition, um, which is a sort of concoction um, of, uh, sort of community members and researchers and policymakers community service providers who are interested in, in solving this problem. Um, and we're in a, our very, very early stages, um, probably only really nine months properly old, aren't we? Um, but I would suggest you join um, and be part of the, the conversations that we're happening and bang the drums that we're hoping to bang a little bit louder over the next few years. You want to say Thank you. Look, I guess mainly aimed at you. One thing that got in front was talking about people being rewarded for choosing cheaper options that are there, you know, in our supermarkets and um, service stations and, and everywhere. And I'm wondering when the policy of, uh, okay, another step. We've got the you know the amazing amount of diabetes coming in and the huge cost of that. When will it come through that they're going to put a tax on the cheap, sugary foods that are so readily available, so attractive to people and cause massive problems. I mean, if we're looking at the user pay system, I'd like to see some of the companies making huge amounts of money from that, paying some of that into our health system, which is going to be overwhelmed by the tsunami of diabetes in our society. Yes, yeah, a great question. Um, I mean, to, to be frank, I think big food has probably run amok in Australia for a long time without um, too much regulation. Um, it's fair to say, though, that uh, the federal and state departments of health are starting to push the envelope a little bit further than they have in the past with regards to reformulation. Um, so, so it means uh, basically reducing the saturated fat, sugar and salt that ends up in the food on, on shelves. Um, Exactly. So I think that's 
again, what that does is it pushes the onus onto the individual um, and says, well, we, we trust you to make the healthy choice. I think one of the things that we have to realise is that people are unlikely to make the healthy choice if it's not the easy choice. Um, and I think that that will, will lead to, in the future, probably uh, people pushing for more um, structural reform ar around food environments. And I think a sugar tax or something like that will be part of, will be part of that, but it's not, it's not a fix-all. I think that's one of the things we have to recognise when a problem is as complex as this one is. Um, I think we can get a little bit caught up in the hype of a sugar tax and as it's taking over the world, the impacts that we think it has. If all we're going to do to try and um, reduce incidence rates of food and nutrition insecurity is introduce a sugar tax, I don't think we're likely to achieve very much. So it's about, it's about telling those complex stories in a way that weaves together all of, all of those factors. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to be stricter on, on those regulations. But, um, you know, uh, the Labor Party at the last election uh, did a bit of an expose on sort of the 10 most powerful companies in Australia, and four of them were food companies, and four of them were mining companies, right? And the other two were media companies. So it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's no surprise that we get stuck in the mud on food policy, I think. Um, the reality is, is that those companies have a lot of control over uh, the food that ends up on Australian shelves and the food that Australians eat. Um, and that's probably a conversation that the public needs to have about, about these issues. Um, but I don't think it's just as easy as a sugar tax or something like that. Hi, I'm Victor. I'm a totally unqualified anthropologist. Um, some years ago, I was introduced to the soup kitchen scene in Sydney, and as Luke says, they don't talk to each other. Uh, the one I particularly like is called Rough Edges, which is run by St. John's Anglican Church. Uh, they're so good at what they do is they get a, a lot of food, um, and at the end of the night, they throw stuff away because there's not enough people going to eat it there. I recommend all of you to, to go to Rough Edges, eat with the poor, Saved the food from being thrown away. Uh, a few weeks ago, I invited Mary Bashir to do that, and, and she did. And a few other people, the more people come, the better. It, the food gets eaten and doesn't get thrown away. You get provide company to the poor. And uh, social uh, nutrition is just as important as physical nutrition. So I'm going there tonight. If anybody wants to join me, talk to me. <laughs> Hi, my name's Tim. Um, I'm pretty new to this uh, issue, which seems obviously very important and something that needs to be addressed, so thank you for your presentations. It was really interesting. Um, I feel like from a position of somebody who's relatively food secure, um, it's difficult to try and break that stigma. It's something that you all um, spoke about. So I was wondering if you could suggest how you could delicately address this issue with people that might be close in your life while not truly experiencing yourself. So talking about stories and whatnot, and when you don't experience it, how can you say to somebody, perhaps you're not eating well and this is why you're 
uh, experiencing, you know, these negative results of not eating so well. Um, it, it's a lot harder to think how you do that with somebody who's close to you. It's certainly been an issue that we've thought about a lot in terms of how we address it in the community because um, we would, we, we've tried to work from a community development perspective um, and yet there's a bit double-edged in a way because um, the New Zealanders call it hidden hunger because of the stigma and, and shame associated. If you go to a community and say, what are your issues here? They're much more likely to say um, drug dealers or cars being, um, you know, bombed out cars being left and torched or um, um, crime or things like that. So it's less likely people will talk spontaneously about food insecurity because there's still a lot of individual shame about the idea you can't provide from your family and probably for some families worry that their kids might get taken away. So we've tried to, to, um, to go to communities <coughs> well, we started off by doing quite a comprehensive survey in the first suburbs we worked in and then to frame it as we know that there is food insecurity for a lot of people so that um, is, is that an issue here, is that something you'd like to work on, what kind of projects would you like to see happen um, I'm a bit stumped about how you approach that in terms of somebody that you know who you think isn't eating well enough and it might be affecting them because I think that's a much more um, much more delicate kind of topic um, but uh, yes, I think it's uh, maybe somebody in the audience has got an idea about how you do that with a, um, an individual because you know I think that I think it's hard. And I, I think the only thing is that um, Bill Cruz, who runs the um, Uniting Church in Ashfield, who's done a lot of work around food security because he's had a, a lunch that he has every day for people, and they provide all kinds of other things like shower facilities and remedial education and lots of other things. And he always says um, it's great where people are working in food security because um, for everybody it's important to remember that there but for the grace of God go I. So just being aware that um, we sometimes take things for granted with our friends and relations. We may not realise that people are in a bad way or that um, something's going on with their job or, um, you know, we, we can make a lot of assumptions. And so maybe that's part of what you're saying, that you're fairly food secure, but maybe you make that assumption around your friends that there's not issues going on, but sometimes perhaps we don't look for, we don't see or we don't notice signs of things that can happen and I think um, you know, particularly now, which is I'm sure why food insecurity is on the rise, housing affordability is such a huge issue that um, you know, I know it was some years ago that the Australian Catholic University had a cupboard that they put in their um, corridor that just they put pasta and things like that for people to be able to go and anonymously help themselves. Now university students are not necessarily the people you think are going to be the most food insecure. Um, well, I know that the, the, the um, benefits are not that great, but if you're thinking about you know, people's ideas of who are food insecure, I think haven't usually included students or people, on, on, um, people who are working but haven't got much money. So I think, um, I think it, is, it is an increasing issue because there's so, many, other, there's, there's so mm. many problems around some of the other issues in terms of affordable living. Um, so there may be lots of people being affected that we haven't anticipated. I haven't really answered your question, but um, I'd like to open it to the floor because I don't have any special expertise in that. I'd just like to maybe quickly add something to, to Liz's comments um, around how we talk about the issue in, in general. So again, I'm quite stumped by your question and of how you would ask someone close to you. But I think, you know, we actually, a lot of the stigma around concepts like this is attached to the words that we use. So, for instance, um, I get quite angry about colleagues in the UK that refer to food insecurity as food poverty. 
um, because I think it attaches a stigma around poverty to the issue of not being able to eat well or, or eat at all. Um, and I often think food insecurity often is probably rebuffs people because it's quite a jargonistic um, word. And so, you know, when we try and tell stories, I think it's important to revert back to putting good food on the table or struggling to put good food on the table. So I think, you know, what, what that says is, is I think being able to empathise and understand or take the perspective of another person means that we need to be aware of the way that they, why, why they feel stigmatised or would feel stigmatised about something in the, in the first instance. And, you know, there's a, a lot of great work done on not food but the stigma attached to poverty in the UK that says when you talk to people on low incomes, um, they actually won't say, oh, I'm poor or I'm suffering from poverty. Um, they'll point to someone else and say, they're poor, they're worse off than, than me, but I'm middle class. Um, so I think it's, it's about thinking about how to make a welcoming space for those kind of conversations. Does anyone in the audience have any good ideas on that? Tough questions tonight, this is nice. Just one thing, I, when, when we're just getting ready for this evening, one thing I read um, for somebody in the, that was in the Parity magazine, um, somebody saying, it was in relation to the person who said they, they couldn't go make good decisions in Centrelink because they were lightheaded, just saying, why did nobody, nobody thought to have some food there? So if you're actually working with people who may be suffering food insecurity, having some food there so that people can help themselves if they want to, so that you don't have to ask all the time, so that people can... It's, it's just there at the student, that might be something you want. Maybe that's a good starting point. Uh, my name's Cosmos. I was just wondering um, what may be the connection between food insecurity and food miles. And I wonder if that may present a framework for thinking about the role of different levels of government in terms of... Um, issues of market failure, public benefit, failures of public benefit, failures of uh, private benefit and so on, to be able to then allocate responsibilities or, 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 or get them engaged um, in, in trying to deal with this. And, and then tr just trying to draw a parallel also with um, um, the anti-smoking um, initiatives, um, anti-safe um, uh, um, uh, sex initiatives and things like that that are actually quite um, um, well engaged, different levels of government. Um, and, and, and seeing if perhaps there's models that they're uh, using that may in fact be able to be transported to the issue of um, the food. I certainly think um, like doing parallel with tobacco is a good one because that's, that's you know, discretionary, it's a choice and yet we've made quite strict rules and regulations around it that aren't just about choice and they're looking about trying to make safe environments for people. I think... You know, I think a lot of people say that, that that's something we could do around um, looking at, at um, taxing unhealthy foods because the implication is who ends up paying for it will all end up paying. You know, if, if we keep making it so difficult for people to access healthy foods and you know, in a way counter to what you said earlier on about people loading up with all that food, we find a lot of people say they know very well what they should be eating. They just can't get it. They just can't afford it. So it's not only about education, it is really a lot about environments. Um, the first part of your question about food miles, I think, is incredibly tricky story because the way that I think there's a there's a really huge kind of overhaul of the way we think about food and and the way we think about 
the economy in general um, implicit in that because at the moment the economies of scale are that it's cheaper. If you, so if you're looking at cheap food, it can be cheaper apparently to transport tomatoes from South Australia to Brisbane to warehouse and back down to South Australia. That's cheaper. Or apples from England to South Africa to be waxed and sent back again. And that to me is a much bigger question than, than I feel we can answer just in Australia alone because um, the way that we understand costs and embedded costs and I can't think what they call it, cost externalities, yes. There's a lot of that work that we really haven't done at all. So we might be looking at what's cheap and available now. And in a way it's the same story as saying, well, this is cheap food now, but it's going to cost us later in terms of a health problem. But some of those much bigger, much bigger um, takes on the whole issue, I think we, we haven't got anywhere near it. And a few years ago, Julia Gillard promised a food policy if... Um, if Labour Party got into power and we had a national food policy that was under development but it was completely dominated by the usual players, by the big food companies and it was mostly just looking at um, export opportunities for food as a commodity to the growing market. Although the, the introduction to that food policy said there's lots of problems with climate change and reducing capacity in the country etc. We just looked at the market and said we're going to be able to fill it um, and, and that was the main take. The, the, part, the part that looked at food security was derisory and the, the, what was suggested for it was pathetic. Um, apart from the fact that when they went around to do so-called consultations for people, they said there's 2% food insecurity in Australia. I've never read that there's 2% food insecurity in any. Uh, that we don't have that many studies and they, they don't always agree, but I've never read that it's 2%. But when you raise it, they said, oh, it's other, people who've, other people have commented on that, but it's not hard to change the PowerPoint. So I think it's a, it's a deliberate wish not to look at it as an issue. And I think um, if we were looking, I mean, in a way, perhaps it was a, not a bad thing that that food policy just went down the drain because it just didn't begin to address the broad range of issues that we need to look at in terms of a, a future for food in the country. Uh, just, just quickly, because I think Liz has covered that really well. I think pragmatically and strategically trying to get, for instance, federal and state departments of health on side, um, the far easier argument to make is one of fiscal cost um, of food insecurity to the state health budgets, um, because that's significant and research in Canada has now done the formula to, to work it out. It's just plugging the Australian numbers in, which no one's had the time to do yet properly. Um, but when we did that, or if and when we, we do that, um, I think that that will be significant enough of an impetus to at least get a conversation going. I think if you tried to talk about food miles inside the departments of health, people would give you a blank stare, um, to, to be honest. Um, it's obviously relevant, but it's probably not the right lever to pull, in my opinion. Hi, thanks. You want some wild card ideas? I'm, I'm just thought of a few. I'll try and put them together. Um, we're very good at going to uh, developing countries and, and educating people as to you know how to um, look after themselves when they're rapidly developing into a second or first world country. Um, perhaps we could just use that mindset here in the communities we do know about for this question and apply some of those principles, like educating the women, and uh, maybe uh, we could. Um, have the women organised in groups of whatever, cultural groups or regional groups or something like that, and get them to bulk, bu bulk buy, have a, have a food cooperative or something like that for proper food. Um, you know, that might be some way of looking at it because we're very good at applying it to other people, other countries, etc. Um, maybe we need to, for this sector of our society, we need to apply those principles there. But I, I just quickly mentioned that 
some years ago I was at a medical conference and there was a, um, a, a session about um, working in the, in the South Pacific Islands with a group of doctors who used to do flying squads there for various reasons and they had a graph of the um, crossover of the reasons why people died or got seriously ill and um, where the, uh, the, the crossover occurred at you know, some point of development where people stopped dying of infectious diseases because medical science at least even got to some places like that and they started dying of the coca colorization of those countries and it was just stunning, I've never forgotten it and that was quite a long time ago. Um, so anyway, there's some wild card ideas for you. Um, and that, that, that's the thing is that maybe education is the most powerful thing you can do for the, for the money you might have rather than hammering away at fiscal, or, you know, ta sugar taxes or something like that initially because they, they're cumbersome things. Um, I don't know if, if, if you know, how, how the numbers would stack up in that sense. But um, anyway, and, and also urban planning, that's a brilliant suggestion about, or bringing that fact in as a Victorian, about the Victorian urban planning, that's so incredibly important to be close, have access to food. But if bulk buying can solve some of that problem or, or food um, uh, cooperatives or something like that, that might get around that problem initially. So maybe some closing comments from each of you? So I think, in general, the point you make is, is really good and that we probably have a little bit of exceptionalism around applying what we use in developing um, countries to Australian communities where there, in principle, is a lot of overlap in sort of the way that we work and the strategies that we might, that we might use. Um, I think um, you know, one of the things that Liz might be able to talk about is, for instance, the... Um, Warwick Farm Food for Life Market, which in many ways is a, is a food cooperative that's subsidised um, by emergency food um, and by uh, sort of other social service providers. But in general, and I think a point to, to really hammer here is that money is scarce in this sector um, so that we are all fighting against each other for the same limited pool of funding to deliver the same services um, in a way that just telling people to deliver new or different programs probably isn't the, the, the right path forward. I think it's an investment in the space and a recognition that there are structural problems that probably need to be addressed structurally, but in the meantime, we need to be actually helping Australian families to eat and eat well, and that means funding programs through health promotion and local health districts and giving them the money to do that sufficiently rather than the dribs and drabs that we give them at the moment. The other thing I'll, I'll finally say is that, um, very unrelated, uh, is that we are having some drinks um, after this for people that are interested in hearing more about the Right to Food Coalition at the Forest Lodge Hotel. Um, Liz and I will be leading the charge. Um, so I have a red umbrella, follow that. I was just going to say that I think there are, like, there are a lot of those grassroots initiatives and a lot of things happening at the community level. Um, and part of the problem is, as Luke said, it is a bit fragmented, but it is happening. But I also think that a forum like this sort of highlights that really it's time for more of a structural, like a government response to it. It's not, it shouldn't be an issue that's you know, in the charitable sector all the time. Um, and so looking at those real structural determinants like having um, enough jobs for people and a basic living wage if you're on New Start or Youth Allowance, all those sorts of things is where we need to put some of the focus. 
I'd agree with that, and I, and I do think that looking at the advertising and promotions and, and sugar tax, I think they're a really important part of it, because um, I think, you know, it, people advertise because advertising works, and so if we've got advertising of those foods, which or, you know, as Michael Pollan would call them, food-like substances, um, you know, I think that's really it's a it's a powerful descriptor, which is they're not about that's not about food. We actually need to get people back into eating food and work out how that's how to make that more possible. All right, well, thanks to Tegan and Liz and Luke for great presentations and for patience with your questions. <laughs> there is 